Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon, <clears throat> excuse me, taking your calls. Uh, my voice is a little bit on the edge, but that's okay. I've been busy using it a lot. Um, we take calls from listeners, if, especially those that have either questions about the Bible or the Christian life. Usually those would be Christians, but they don't have to be. Uh, or we take calls from people who disagree from the ho- with the host on something, uh, and, uh, and that could be a Christian or a non-Christian as well. Uh, so if you're in any of those categories, if you have something to say, this hour may provide the opportunity for you to raise that subject on the air. Um, right now our lines are full, but let me give you the phone number, and uh, these lines will be emptying. Uh, as we talk to these callers, lines will be opening up through the whole hour. So if you try randomly sometime in the next several minutes, you may find a line has opened up. The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Our first caller today is Kay calling from Las Vegas, Nevada. Hi, Kay. Welcome. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for taking my call. It's good to talk to you again. Sure. I just wanted you to know, thank you. I listened to your entire debate on Saturday. It was awesome with uh, between you and Atheist Max. Really Mm -hmm. enjoyed it. I want to thank you for being open to that debate and thank him for setting it up. It was very good. But uh, in reading Romans 5, 12, I, I see that it does talk about through one man sin entered the world and then death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, I was, I'm was i a little confused, I think, about this in conjunction with what you've referred to in the past as the doctrine of original sin. Can you explain that to me? Yes, yes, I think I can. Uh, This verse is the very verse that Augustine used to formulate the doctrine of original sin. Now, uh, the doctrine of original sin, uh, as introduced by Augustine, uh, was not held by Christians for the first three centuries. They didn't understand the verse the way he did. But uh, his mistake was as follows. Uh, He did not read Greek, so he didn't read the original New Testament. He only read the Latin Vulgate, and he said so himself. He could not read Greek. Um, in the Latin Vulgate, the wording is different in this passage, and it's different in a way that encouraged him to make a mistake, I think, about it, which the Greek fathers before him didn't make, and that's why they didn't come up with that doctrine. Now, the doctrine of original sin, as Augustine taught it and introduced it, held that sin is passed down genetically uh, from Adam to all of his offspring, and the... uh, the symptoms, or or I should say the consequences of that, are A, that everyone who's conceived of a man or woman is guilty of Adam's sin. We were part of the human race. The entire human race was in Adam when he sinned. He's the federal head of the race, as they would say, and his sin becomes all of our sins. So even if a child (coughs) is miscarried or is uh, aborted, that child is uh, basically lost. He's a sinner. Uh, because although he's committed no sins, he has inherited the guilt and culpability of Adam's sin. Now, that's part of it. The other part of the doctrine is, of course, that every person since Adam has been born with a propensity towards sin, that when Adam sinned, 
uh, he acquired a different kind of nature than he had before he sinned. And that nature was a sinful nature, which compelled him to continue living in sin. And this sinful nature was passed down to his offspring so that everyone who's born of Adam is born guilty of what Adam did and therefore has to answer before God, uh, you know, for the guilt of that. And also is born with a, an infection of, a, uh, as it were, an addiction, uh, like, like a person who's got a, a, an addict uh, a drug addict for a mother or a father, especially a mother, uh, may be born with an addiction. Uh, it's not the child's fault, but frankly, it doesn't matter. It's just as inconvenient whether it's their fault or not, and that our addiction is to sinning. That's what Augustine's uh, doctrine said if we put it into very simple terms. Of course, there are more uh, erudite ways of elaborating on it. Now, <clears throat> Paul did not say those specific things if he had then those church fathers who read the Bible in their home uh, original language, which is the Bible's original language of Greek, uh, they would have noticed it. Uh, here's the problem. It says in Romans 5.12, therefore, as through one man, sin entered the world. Okay, well, we, I think we all agree about that. There were no sins right. in the world. There were no sins in the world before Adam's sin. So the, the phenomenon of sin entered into world history, entered into human history through one man. Because he was the only man there was, and he sinned. Therefore, the phenomenon of sin entered human history and the world through him. Now, this doesn't tell us anything about his offspring. This is just talking about the one man here. But he says, it says, and death came through sin. Well, we agree with that too. Man, because of his sin, was deprived of immortality. He was not allowed to eat of the tree of life, which would have allowed him to live forever. And as a result, of course, he died. And so the, the first, uh, what, three of the four and a half lines in the verse, uh, everybody agrees about, but they don't, they don't make any uh, reference to a doctrine of original sin. But the rest of the verse is thought by Augustine to do so. It says, and thus death spread to all men. Okay, well, death spread to all men. Uh, is this a genetic thing that happened? Did it happen, uh, did, do we all die because Adam sinned? Or do we die because we sinned? Now, the last line is where the Greek and the Latin are different, where Paul says, death spread to all men. The Greek says, because all sinned. Now, because all sinned means because we sinned, like Adam did, death spread to us too, as it did to him. We, we all have, we all die because so we all sin. And it says the wages of sin is death. Now, earlier, um, uh, in chapter 3, just two chapters earlier, Paul, in verse 23, said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This statement, all have sinned, is the same phrase that Paul uses here. Death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, certainly in, three, in chapter 3, verse 23, we understand that to mean all have individually sinned. And that's right. no doubt what it means here. So death has spread to all people as it came. Uh, Adam was the first both to sin and to suffer the consequences of sin, which is death. And <clears throat> death spread to the whole human race because all sinned. So all did the same thing that Adam did, and therefore they all die. Now, that's the only verse in the New Testament that can be thought to teach original sin. There was one verse in the Old Testament Augustine used, which was uh, Psalm 51.5, where David said, In sin my mother conceived me. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And so Augustine thought that meant that David is saying 
that from the moment of his conception, uh, David was a sinner. But David didn't say anything about him being a sinner. He said in sin, his mother conceived him. He's not talking about what he did. He's talking about what his mother did. His mother conceived him in sin. So this is not a statement about David's uh, activities or David's culpability. This is a, a reference to what I mean, the most natural receipt is his mother's activities. And that David might have been conceived out of wedlock is, is not known, but it certainly fits the facts. His father and his brothers were pretty ashamed of him. We read in the book of Judges about uh, Jephthah, who had many brothers, but Jephthah was the son of a prostitute uh, by his father, and his brothers were not, and his brothers ostracized him and hated him and drove him off. Now, the, the brothers of David felt the same way toward him. Uh, he was left out to keep the sheep while his brothers did other more social things. When Samuel called for Je Jesse to bring his sons in, he brought all of them except David in. Uh, when David went to visit his brothers on the battlefield, they, they spoke abusively to him without provocation. Uh, David himself said in Psalm 27:10, when my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. So, I mean, it's like, okay, uh, whoever talks about their mother and their father forsaking him, unless maybe that was something that happened. Uh, anyway, the point is there, there's nothing in the Bible that says that David was conceived out of wedlock, but his statement in, uh, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me certainly sounds more like a statement about his mother than about him. So it's not, and, and no one prior to Augustine thought that this taught a doctrine of original sin. So, if we are fans of Augustine, and certainly the Catholic Church is, and, and the Reformed churches are, um, then we can, we can say, well, I'm, I'm a fan of Augustine. I'm going to see it his way, even if there's no justification in the text. I'm going to see it that way. That's the way we have come to see it, and that makes sense to us. Now, the thing is that when I was debating Max, he, he brought up this matter, and he said that if Adam didn't exist and didn't sin, then there's no, the, there's no original sin, and therefore, there's no need for the Savior. Now, my position is not that Adam didn't exist. He did. Uh, and, and I'm certainly not saying that Adam didn't sin. We know he did. But the doctrine of original sin does not naturally flow from that. At least God didn't say so. When Adam sinned, God told Adam and Eve what the consequences of their sin would be. And nothing was mentioned about any consequence upon their children specifically or any inheritance of sin. He just said, you're going to, in the sweat of your face, you're going to eat your food and you're going to have to labor for your, for your food. He didn't say anything about the much more important question of, and all your children are going to go hell if they don't get redeemed. Um, now, I, I believe that we need Jesus because we sinned. Now, Adam sinned too. Right. And so has everybody sinned. And, but it's because I sinned that I need Jesus, not because Adam did. Very interesting, Steve. I really appreciate this. Do you have anything on your website that I could that gives me more detailed information on this? Like there is a lecture. Or... Yeah, there's a lecture okay. under the um, under the topical lectures category, and it might be under mm -hmm. the category that says various topics or something like that. Um, there is a lecture called um, I think it's called original sin and total depravity or something like that where I'm talking, uh, no, original Great. sin, okay. original sin and depravity, I think it's called. Yeah. Perfect. I'll look for that. Listen, uh, I really appreciated meeting you last year and I'm hoping that you're going to plan a visit to Vegas this year as well. I plan one every time I'm invited. 
Somebody has to invite. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll look for that. Thank you so much, Steve. God bless you. Thanks, Kay. Good talking to you. All right. Uh, Preston from Dallas, Texas. Hi, Preston. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I've got uh, three questions, but I wrote them out so I can be as succinct as possible. Um, I heard a caller earlier uh, a few days ago ask the question about the Revel- uh, Revelation 1-1 where it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that, that must soon take place. And I was just yes. curious, is it a, a reasonable interpretation of this verse to think that, well, uh, perhaps God did indeed give this to him specifically uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry where he said basically the same things in the Olivet Prophecy since he, did, since he didn't do anything except by the Father's will. Maybe that was the point of reference for when these things were given to Jesus by the Father? Yes, when this came up, uh, what, last week, I think it was, uh, on the air, the suggestion was made that, you know, that if God gave this revelation to Jesus and and it was given to an angel to give it to John, uh, this must have happened after Jesus ascended, since that's when John received the revelation. And uh, and if, if after Jesus ascended, he needed God to give him such revelations, it would suggest that Jesus, even in his ascended state, is not omniscient because he would have to have, be given this information. That's which is a, uh, you know, an, an interesting point. I've never heard anyone make that point before, which is unusual for someone to say something I haven't heard before. <laughs> but anyway, okay. it was an interesting point. But you're making a good point, too. Uh, certainly the information in the book of Revelation, uh, its main um what should we say, strands of information were given by Jesus on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And uh, although the book of Revelation fleshes it out a lot more and gives more detail, we don't know that Jesus didn't have all this detail at the time, though he gave a somewhat abbreviated discourse. He certainly knew a lot of this stuff because it's in his discourse. And uh, and how much more he could have said had he taken the time to do so, we don't know. Um, it's it's also not inc- not inconceivable that we could say that when Jesus ascended and returned to his glory that he had before, that's when he received this revelation, uh, you know, from God. Um, although he didn't pour, he didn't send the angel to reveal to John immediately. Um, it could be that he was in possession of it uh, long before John was given it. Okay, thank you. Uh, All my, right. ne- my next question uh-huh. is with when the devil is uh, released and unchained in the book of Revelation. Um, I uh, very much agree with you that his binding is specifically referring to his ability to um, hinder the nations, and, um, and thus with the expansion of the gospel going out to the Gentiles, this correlates to his binding. Um, And so my question is then when he, when he is released, thus he must be unbound from being able to do that. Do you think that correlates then with the, the death of the two witnesses or specifically the, the death of the quote, like the quote unquote death of the church for a short time also, that seems to talk about some sort of halting cessation or incapacitation of an effective gospel to possibly these nations now that Satan's yes. released. Yeah, that, that is my personal view and has been for, for many years now, that, uh, that the ministry of the two witnesses, which is symbolic for the church, extends through the entire church age. But at the end of their testimony, it says in Revelation 11, 
the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war against them and kill them, and they will their bodies will lie dead in the streets for three days, and then they'll be resurrected and caught into heaven. Uh, I've I've always thought that the three years of their witness, in contrast with the three days of their being apparently dead or truly dead in that in the imagery, uh, that that corresponds with the difference between the thousand years in Revelation 20 and the little while at the end, uh, both of which speak of Satan's victory over the people of God. And so, yeah, the, the, th the three days of the two witnesses, uh, I don't believe it's a literal three days. I think it's borrowed from the story of Jesus himself. I think the two witnesses as the body of Christ are seen as the repetition of, or the second half of uh, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus ministered for three and a half years, then he was dead for three days. The witnesses minister for three and a half years, and they're dead for three days. Not literally, because Revelation is symbolic, and it's using imagery um, symbolically, but the, the choice of images, I think, is to link them <coughs> with, uh, with Jesus' own experience. Um, that's been my opinion. So, so the three days, supposedly, if the witnesses are dead, would be uh, identified also with the little while that Satan is loosed at the end of Revelation 20. I think the storylines of those two chapters uh, parallel pretty much. Okay, awesome. Um, and my last question, at Jesus' return, two things seem to happen either at the same time or in quick succession. Uh, succession. He destroys his enemies with fire, as indicated at the end of Revelation 19, and seemingly parallels Second Thessalonians 1.8. Mm -hmm. And then also, heaven and earth flee away. So uh, I just always pictured this great wine throne judgment kind of occurring uh, just in the suspension awaiting the, 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 the arrival of new heaven and new earth. But did Jesus destroy his enemies upon his immediate return and then turn around and immediately resurrect them to judgment? Or do you see that as a, a, a timeline there? Yeah, I, I understand it to me that when Jesus returns, he comes in, as Paul says, you mentioned in Second Thessalonians 1.8, uh, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel, <clears throat> which is also emblemized in Revelation 20 and verse 9 as fire from heaven comes down and consumes them. Well, they're all destroyed physically, but then it's uh, we also see in verse 11 then, uh, th there's the fleeing away of the heavens and the earth, about, about the same time. And then we see the resurrection, uh, the resurrected dead facing judgment. And then the, the unsaved are going to the lake of fire and, and the saved go into the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. <clears throat> so I see those things all happening uh, around, I mean, I wouldn't say simultaneously, uh, but, but nearly so. I, I believe that, I believe the reason that the church is caught up uh, to meet the Lord in the air is because the earth below will be burned up and remade and then will return with him. I believe it'll be the same day. God created the heavens, and the earth and everything in it in six days originally, says Genesis. So uh, there's no reason he can't re restore it in, in a single day if he wants to. Uh, and in my opinion, all that is said to happen in the Bible on the last day. Okay, and it's just a matter of kind of who's writing it and how uh, how much figurative language or literal language there being in regards to the the rising of the saints to meet Jesus in the air versus the um, judging of like the sheep and the goats on the left and right. 
Right. Well, the sheep and the goats uh, is not in, is not in contradiction to that. Although the sheep and the goats is obviously a parable, and sheep are symbolic, and goats are symbolic of people. So we do have symbolic elements in that parable. But uh, that parable begins in Matthew twenty five thirty one says when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all His holy angels with Him, then He'll sit on the throne of His glory and uh, He'll gather all the nations before Him. Well, I believe He gathers the church to Him at the at the final judgment, and He also will resurrect the wicked and bring them to judgment. And therefore, we see all of that happening at what people often call the Great White Throne Judgment in uh, you know Revelation twenty verses. Uh, what, 12, 11 to 12, something like that, and 13. So anyway, uh, yeah, I believe that uh, I believe that when Paul writes about these things, he doesn't use apocalyptic imagery. That's my opinion. Uh, we have no reason to believe that the, that the Gentile readers that Paul was writing to, especially the Thessalonians, who hardly knew anything about Judaism, who hardly had had any exposure to Paul before he had to be, flee from town and write back to them, uh, I doubt that he would have any reason to use conventions of literature that only uh, you know, rabbinic Jews would be familiar with. Uh, so there's no reason to believe that Paul spoke in apocalyptic terms or anything other than literal terms. But it's very clear that Revelation, the Olivet Discourse, and, and some other um, passages, especially those that uh, you know, maybe pertain to a Jewish audience especially, would, would be uh, using that familiar form. Okay, thank you so much, Greg. I won't take up any more of your time. God bless you. Thanks, Preston. Good talking to you. Okay, uh, Luke from Beaver Creek, Oregon. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, Steve. If I uh, if I lose service, let me know, and I'll just hang up. Okay. Um, when we're looking at the seven feasts in Leviticus, <clears throat> and then looking forward to Christ, we see the first four are very obviously fulfilled in Christ, ending with Pentecost. And then there's the season before the final three feasts uh, begin. And if I remember right, the Feast of Trumpets starts with um, two witnesses witnessing a new moon and then the sound of trumpets. Um, if with the presupposition that the final three feasts are to be as obviously fulfilled in Christ as the first four, and neither of us are futurists, how, how can we look at the Testament and find the, the obvious fulfilling of those last three feasts. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't say that the, any of the feasts were fulfilled in a literal sense, but they were certainly, it's certainly the case that the spiritual fulfillment of each feast occurred at the same time that the rituals of that feast uh, on the calendar were being celebrated. So Jesus, who is the sacrificed lamb, which is not literal, he's not really a lamb, but, um, you know, he, he was sacrificed at Passover. Uh, he rose from the dead at the Feast of First Fruits. Now, the Feast of First Fruits is when they would wave the barley har uh, first fruits uh, in the air. Uh, Jesus was not a barley harvest uh, 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 you know, sheaf, but, but he was the first fruits of those who sleep in his resurrection. And, of course, uh, Pentecost was the ingathering uh, of the harvest, and, and Jesus began the ingathering into his uh, body uh, at Pentecost and so forth. So, you know, in other words, the feasts, each of them spoke of something in uh, symbolic ways, but was fulfilled in, the, in its literal form by Jesus. Now, uh, the question then, of course, becomes, what about the remaining feasts? Uh, will they be uh, fulfilled on the very days uh, 
that they are being celebrated by the Jews. Uh, well, I think it's reasonable to assume that that is so, though I'm not sure that we have to take a futurist view of it. Um, there are three possibilities that I'm aware of. One is that the, the remaining feasts are going to take place at the end of the world at the, around the second coming of Christ. That's a dispensational view, and I think a lot of non-dispensationalists probably feel the same way about it. Uh, and it's, it might be the, the predominant view I've ever heard that you know, these feasts have to do with the end of, the, end of time. Uh, there's two other possibilities. One of them, of course, is that they are fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem, since the Jewish calendar pertained to the Jews in particular, and the end of the Jewish order occurred at the fall of Jerusalem. And therefore, it's not impossible to say that, the, that those festivals were in one way or another fulfilled at that time. Uh, but there's even a third way and that is the possibility that those feasts are actually not the end, but the beginning of the era. Yeah, because the Jewish year had two beginnings. It had the religious beginning at Passover. It had the civil beginning, you know, in September uh, with the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur and those things, Rosh Hashanah. And, um, and therefore, the question is, uh, since the year is, is a cycle and doesn't have a beginning or an end, where do you find the beginning of the symbolism? Could the symbolism begin in the, with the fall feasts? If so, could, for example, the Feast of Tabernacles be fulfilled in some sense by Jesus, the word tabernacling among us and becoming flesh, and then, of course, us, us tabernacling with him, uh, as we do now, according to 2 Corinthians 5? Uh, there's, there are some things to consider there. I, I am not decided. I'm not decided, but I see three possibilities, and I do think that the timing of the feast probably will coincide, or did coincide if it's in the past, with the, the time of their uh, celebration by the Jews. Hey, I need to take a break. I'm sorry to do that. I'd like to tease this out a little further if we had more time. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. We have another half hour coming up. Don't go away. The Narrow Path is listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and you'll find out how to help us there. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go away. If you enjoy the Narrow Path radio program, you'd really like the resources at our website, thenarrowpath.com, where hundreds of biblical lectures and messages by our host, Steve Gregg, can be accessed without charge and listened to at your convenience. If you have not done so, visit the website, thenarrowpath.com, and discover all that is available for your learning pleasure. Welcome back to The Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for uh, another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith or a difference of opinion you have with the host and you'd like to call to uh, bring that up for conversation on the air, we currently have a couple of lines open. That was not true when we started the program a half hour ago. And so there is the opportunity for you to get on. The number is 844-484-5700. 37. I'll give it to you again. 844-484-5737. Four, 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 
All right, our next caller is uh, going to be uh, Brian from New Hampshire. Brian, welcome. Yes, hi, Steve. Um, I heard your um, your debate on Saturday, and uh, it was interesting. Um, I'm hoping that Max is listening because I had a couple of points I wanted to bring out. Um, one is I never hear any atheists or agnostics or unbelievers anywhere have I ever heard when they're facing death in a panicky situation, they never cry out to the almighty Big Bang to save them. That never never seems to happen that they call on the origin of their belief. Well, that, that, but let, me, let me say about that. <clears throat> yeah. That would be more of a rhetorical, uh, cute kind of an argument rather than a very strong one because, of course, they don't believe and, and their belief system does not incline them to believe that the Big Bang still exists as something to call out to. That's something that happened as a, you know, a, a singular event. And so, of course, they wouldn't call out to that even if they really believed in it. Go ahead. Okay. Well, anyway, but, but more to the point, they call on God, if anything. But the other point is uh, if the atheists are right, they can never prove it because we'll all be dead and that's the end of it. But if we're, we are right, we can prove it forever. Well, uh, that is true. But to whom? <laughs> Only people who already know it. <laughs> you know, of course, that's, that's sort of a variety of Pascal's wager. Uh, Pascal, the great French mathematician and scientist, uh, one of France's greatest in his time, uh, wrote uh, quite a few writings that touched on religious subjects. And, and uh, his famous wager is, well, uh, we should act, uh, we should believe, we should do what we can to be believing in God. Because if we believe there's no God, and it turns out to be false, we have lost nothing. That is, if, if I believe there is a God and it turns out there is not, I have lost nothing. On the other hand, if we believe there is no God and we turn out to be wrong, and there is, well, then we may have lost everything. Uh, so that, again, the, the Christian would be vindicated after death if it's true. The atheist, if, if his views are true, doesn't receive any vindication at all. Uh, but he does take the chance of suffering loss if he's wrong. If the Christian is wrong, he takes no chances of suffering loss. Now, most atheists I know would counter that, would say, well, you're talking as if we can actually believe something because we're making a wager about it, where an honest person doesn't believe something because it's uh, safer to believe it, but they believe something because they're convinced of it from evidence. Well, I'm sure that is true, but the ability to be convinced of something by evidence has a lot to do with whether you want to be convinced or not. I'm not saying you'll believe everything you want to believe, but I will say you will not believe anything that you refuse to believe. And therefore, the point is, no matter how good the evidence for God is, a person who's determined not to believe in God will accept nothing of it and, uh, and will believe what they prefer to believe about that. Now, obviously, a lot of atheists who have looked at the evidence have become uh, believers, and these would be many times people who are pretty good at assessing evidence, uh, lawyers, some, quite a few are lawyers and scientists and uh, atheistic philosophers and, uh, you know, people like that, skeptical journalists. But, um, but uh, you know, the only people I've ever known 
who were strong believers in God and became atheists are people who, when I talk to them, it doesn't sound like they had very rational reasons for their change. Most of them did it for emotional reasons. Um, I, I just saw a, a video today uh, from a, a, a young man who was raised Christian, and he rejected the faith because his prayers weren't answered enough. Well, okay, so <laughs> the evidence for God is whether he accommodates you or not. Well, I, 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 that's not a very rational thing. It's disappointment with God, which is an emotional thing. <clears throat> Being disappointed with someone does not, in any sense, prove that they don't exist. In fact, if they didn't exist, you wouldn't be disappointed with them at all because, you, you know, they can't do anything for you. Why would you blame them for not doing anything for you? Now, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know if I've ever really met an atheist who, when you, it comes down to it, their arguments are anything other than emotional. Um, I mean, they may appeal to scientific data, but believers appeal to the same data. There's actually no scientific data that cannot as easily be in, interpreted through the grid that there is, in fact, a God. I mean, some data can be interpreted through the atheist grid, but the same data can be interpreted through a theist grid. So it doesn't compel atheism. And the choice of atheism is, therefore, one that is based on personal reasons. And all the atheists I've ever heard argue for the point, it's very clear what their personal reasons are. They either have been very angered or disappointed with God not accommodating them, or else they simply don't want to live according to the morality that God may require them. And, and those are both emotional reasons and not rational ones. Anyway, I appreciate your call, Brian. Thanks for joining us today. Let's talk to David from Portland, Oregon. David, welcome. Oh, hi. Uh, wanted to talk to you about the millennium. Uh, okay. Do you believe that we're in the millennium now? Well, I'm an amillennialist, and if you're not familiar with what that means, it means that the only place in the Bible which mentions a millennium, which is Revelation 20, is written in symbolic terms like the rest of the book of Revelation, and that those symbols represent the present age as a period of a thousand years. Not literally a thousand years, because frankly, very little in the book of Revelation could be demonstrated to be literal. Um, and certainly the number thousand is virtually never literal in scripture. Uh, the number thousand is used many, many times as a round number that just means a large indeterminate quantity. And therefore, the amillennial says, well, the thousand years, which is only mentioned in one place in the Bible, Revelation 20, um, that thousand years is symbolic for simply a very long period of time of indeterminate length. The binding of Satan at the beginning of the thousand years is seen as a, a, a very symbolic description of what Jesus accomplished at the cross when, as many other passages in, scribe, in Scripture tell us, Jesus disabled Satan, he triumphed over him, he uh, defeated him. Uh, that's you know put into graphic, symbolic terms described in Revelation 20 as a dragon, which is not literal. Satan's not literally a dragon. You know, chained with a chain. Well, you can't you can't really bind a spirit like Satan with a real chain. So that's you know, just symbolic. Thrown into a bottomless pit with a lid and a seal for a thousand years. Well, in my opinion, those are symbolic statements. Everything about them is symbolic, and they symbolize the ultimate defeat of Satan. Well, I shouldn't say the ultimate, but the signal defeat of Satan uh, at the first coming of Christ. 
followed by the thousand years, which is then followed by Satan being released to do harm again for a little while, and then the second coming of Christ, which is seen at the end of that little while in Revelation 20, verse 9, with the fire coming down from heaven. Then you have the resurrection and the judgment, which Jesus always said, and so did Paul, would occur at the second coming of Christ. So at the end of the thousand years, you see a resurrection and judgment, and all the non-symbolic <coughs> uh, passages that talk about these things, place them unambiguously at the second coming of Christ. So the second coming of Christ is at the end of the millennium there. The first coming of Christ is the beginning of it. And the thousand years is symbolic of the whole period between the first and second coming of Christ. That's the amillennial view. So the, the millennium started Jesus arriving and it's going to end when at the second coming of Christ. Is that what you believe? Uh, well, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it began really when Jesus died and rose again. Yeah. Oh, died and rose again at the resurrection. Mm -hmm. That's where it is said that he totally defeated Satan. Yeah. Well, it just seems like things aren't really the way it should be during the millennium right now. It's just, just well, you know what I've ever. I know, I know, but you realize that when you hear the word millennium. You've got a host of mental pictures of a certain world during a period of time, and and none of them are found. None of those pictures are found in Revelation 20, and that's the only place where the millennium is mentioned. The millennium is not mentioned anywhere else in the in the Bible, uh, and therefore, you know, <clears throat> the thousand years that you're imagining is based on what premillennial preachers have always depicted it as, but none of the characteristics of it are found in Revelation 20. For example, all the nations being at peace, for example. Uh, you know, the lion laying down with the lamb, for example. You know, these kinds of things are not mentioned in Revelation at all. And, uh, and, and the thousand years is not mentioned anywhere except Revelation. So what, what has happened, what we're used to, is that teachers put things together uh, and often take things literally that are written in either poetic or apocalyptic imagery and, and they mesh it all together to make a, a scheme of a future millennium of peace and righteousness. Now, I believe there's a, uh, when Jesus comes, he is going to establish a world of peace and righteousness permanently, not a thousand years, but for a th forever. That's called the new heavens and the new earth. And that's pretty much what, of course, Christianity taught through most of history. Uh, there have always been premillennialists who see it the way you're familiar with, but... Um, uh, for, for the most part, the church didn't see it that way. And I don't anymore. I used to. Thank you for your call, though. Let's talk to uh, Douglas from Phoenix, Arizona. Now, go ahead, Douglas. Your, your line is noisy, so maybe you can give your question, then I can put you on hold so we won't hear the noise. Yeah. Well, the, okay. My question, uh, my question was, uh, what was the purpose of the baptism of Jesus? Okay. That's a good point. Uh, it's often asked, why did Jesus get baptized? And we're not the first people to be puzzled by it. John the Baptist himself was puzzled by it. You know, when Jesus came to be baptized, John said, hey, that's, that, that's unnecessary. <laughs> he said, I should be baptized by you, not you by me. So obviously, the very, uh, the very first response to Jesus being baptized was by John the Baptist who baptized him. And he had the same question in his mind. Why is Jesus doing that? Well, um, you know, the only answer Jesus gave was he said, let it be so now, 
for it, it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, fulfilling all righteousness seems to mean, and I suppose someone could come up with other possible meanings, but it seems to mean to fulfill all the requirements of righteousness, everything that God is expecting righteous people to do. Now, the reason God expects most righteous people to do it is because they need to be uh, born again. They need to be, they need to express repentance. They need to uh, come into a new faith. They need to die to their old life and be, you know, come into a new life. And so Paul, when he talks about uh, baptism, one of, one of the images he gives is a, a burial and a resurrection, like your old life is dead and you bury it and you resurrect. Now, Jesus, Jesus didn't have a sinful life that had to, that had to go through that. So uh, the fact that God may require this of certain people, uh, of all people even, doesn't mean that Jesus would need it for the same reason. But if God requires people to do it, Jesus didn't want to leave anything out uh, of what God requires people to do. Now, Jesus wouldn't do it for the same reasons we do. Now, some people say that as our baptism, when we get baptized in water, we are kind of uh, harking back to the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and our, our burial and resurrection with him. Uh, and therefore, when Jesus was baptized, it may have been anticipating his burial and resurrection. You know, if that's what baptism means, he hadn't died and resurrected yet, but he, but he knew he would, and that this was, for him, uh, doing this in advance. Now, I'm not sure that this is a good answer, although it sounds good, kind of, at one point. Uh, the thing is that death and resurrection are not the only things that the Bible says uh, are, uh, that, that baptism represents. For example, um, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says that baptism in the, uh, for us is what he called the antitype of Noah and his family being saved through the flood. Now, the antitype means the fulfillment of a prefigurement, that the flood and Noah's salvation of his family through the flood was a type or a shadow, foreshadowing something else. And the thing it foreshadowed is us being baptized. So being baptized by P Peter is not comparing it with a burial and a resurrection, but with a salvation through water uh, as Noah and his family were, were saved through the flood. Now, Paul in another place in 1 Corinthians 10 compares baptism with the Israelites coming through the Red Sea. He says they were baptized like we were in water uh, and in, in the sea, you know, as they passed through. Now, again, it's, again, a matter of a type and a foreshadowing, but there's, there's these three images uh, that baptism in the New Testament is said to be related to, and maybe four, because there is the possibility that uh, the idea of ceremonial washing in the Old Testament is a type of uh, baptism in the New Testament. So at least maybe four different images, and death and resurrection are not the only ones. Now, in the case of Noah and his family going through the flood and coming out on the other side, or Israel going through the Red Sea and coming out on the other side, um, really what you have is people leaving one world behind and emerging into a new world, a clean world. They're leaving a world of bondage, sin, uh, you know, corruption behind them. And they're coming out on the other side into freedom and, cl and cleanness and so forth and starting afresh. Now, Jesus came to inaugurate that new order, which is like the world after the flood, or like Israel after they passed through the Red Sea. That new order 
that was typified that way is something Jesus brought about. And it may well be that that's the main imagery he's thinking of in, in baptism. Um, and that he himself is passing through that portal into the new creation. He literally did so in his resurrection. But at the beginning of his ministry, he may have symbolically emblemized that. Um, and, and the main thing I would say is this, that Jesus is a shepherd and the shepherd goes ahead of his sheep. He leads them. He doesn't go, he doesn't send them places that he won't go himself. And if Jesus had no other reason to be baptized than simply that he wanted his disciples to be baptized, then for him to go through those waters and to set the example for them is that, that'd be reason enough for him to do it, even if he didn't need it at all. So all I can say, th these are some thoughts. These are not the answer. I mean, the answer may be in there somewhere, but uh, these are some of the thoughts that come to mind when we think about why would Jesus be baptized. Um, and that's about the best we actually can do with the information we have. All right. Thank you for your call. Um, okay, let's talk to Rick from Napa, California. Rick, welcome. Hi, Steve. I had a Hi. question. Well, I have a comment, I guess, uh, related to some a question that someone asked you last week, was, which was, uh, could Satan repent? And mm -hmm. you basically said something to the effect that, you know, we're not given that information. And, of course, we're not directly given that information. But we are told things that would help us uh, uh, come up with some kind of a, a solid answer. And my thought during the conversation was that, well, it doesn't really do any good to repent unless Jesus died for your sins. You know, you can repent all you want, but unless the Son of God paid the penalty, your repenting is not going to do anything. And <clears throat> the same thing would hold true with Satan. We're told there are angels who are chained and reserved for the day of judgment. So evidently, you know, no one died for them. They can't be saved. And uh, the same would hold true for Satan, you would think. If his sins have not been paid for by the by God the Son, how could he, you know, possibly be uh, saved? Well, I hear you. And, and you're quite right that uh, the Bible makes it very clear. Jesus didn't die for angels. Uh, in Hebrews, it says that he did not help angels, but, but the seed of Abraham. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I, there, no atonement is known to have ever been made for, for Satan or the fallen angels. I'll grant you that. And if there is no atonement, then, you know, we could say, well, how in the world then could he be saved even if he repented? Uh, well, one possibility is, is by the mercy of God. But I'm not, I'm not arguing that he will be. In fact, I, I believe he will not be. I think Revelation chapter 20 is prophetic. And it depicts Satan being thrown into the lake of fire. And um, so I, I, I think that the whole question of whether Satan could repent or not is eclipsed by the reality uh, that he apparently is not going to. It's, it's a little bit like, in a way, the, the question about whether Jesus could have sinned or not. We know he didn't, but could he have? Well, uh, you know, Orthodox Christian theology has always said, no, he couldn't have. Uh, well, we don't know whether he could have or couldn't have, but he didn't. And so it becomes a moot point. Likewise, we don't know if Satan can repent or not, but he apparently is not going to. So once again, it becomes, it seems, a rather moot point. So that'd be my 
that'd be my uh, my thoughts on that. I need to say something to the studio here. Uh, assistant producer went totally off my screen. And uh, a moment ago, I was looking at the callers, knowing who was there. And now uh, your computer has shut down uh, assistant producer, so I can't see it. So maybe the studio can do something about that. We have a few minutes left. And I would like to take some of the other callers that are waiting. So, But I, I can't see them now. So uh, while we're waiting for that to come back up, hopefully it will. Um, uh, Sarah wrote and said, Steve, I recently joined a small group at Berean Bible Church in Tennessee at one of the small group meetings. Well, I'm, I'm okay, we don't have much time and, I, and this screen came back up, so I'm gonna take the callers and said, I can hold off on this question for another time. Uh, let's see here. We've got uh, John from Indiana next. John, welcome. Yes, how you doing, Steve? Good, thanks. Uh, my question is, uh, we were having a debate on that God created the heavens and earth in seven days. And they said, how could anybody or, you know, any being do that in seven days? And my reply was, well, how do you know what his day was? I would just wonder your thoughts on that. Well, um, in Genesis chapter 1, the, the, uh, the, the definition of a day is actually given to us. Uh, it says that on day one, he created light. And then there was a succession after that of light and darkness. And, uh, and he called the darkness night. And the day, light period he called day. And it says the evening and morning were the first day. And then the evening and the morning came next was the second day. So we actually have a definition of the day. The, the cycle uh, from night to the next night uh, was a day. Now, of course, were these 24-hour days? Well, that depends on how fast the Earth was turning. Uh, and the Earth probably was turning about the same speed it is now, if not exactly the same speed. One of the ways we know that we live in kind of a designer planet is because there's all kinds of coordinates that have to mesh together to make this world a habitable place. And one of the one of the facts is that day and night could not be very much different in length without it getting too cold uh, during the night. Um, I mean, it might it might be maybe several hours longer as it is in the North Pole and so forth. But but it's pretty cold there too. Um, so the I mean, it, I, there's no reason to believe the Earth turned at a different rate to create uh, the sequence of night and day uh, in in Genesis uh, any differently than now. So I, I just I think we can assume, uh, open to correction if they, if we receive more knowledge, that the spinning of the Earth was at the same speed then as it is now. And if it was not exactly the same, it wouldn't be immensely different. So the days would be roughly 24 hours or, you know, give or take a factor, maybe two or three. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, and it doesn't matter. But still, I think your friend would say, even if we made each day, uh, uh, you know, 10 times longer than it is now, uh, how could God, <laughs> how could God uh, create everything in 10 weeks? Uh, well, uh, instead of one week. Well, uh, the question of how could God do it is a, kind of a strange question to ask. Uh, let's just give God billions of years to do it. How could anyone do it in billions of years? 
how could anyone create the universe, the galaxies, uh, life, uh, you know, all, everything, all the planets and the stars and the suns and so forth? I mean, how could anyone do that unless they can do things immensely and unimaginably uh, greater than, than we are familiar with anyone being able to do? In other words, if there's a God who created it, it doesn't make it any easier for him to do it in uh, 4.5 billion years or 30 billion years to create the universe than to do it in uh, seven days or seven seconds. Uh, since we're not dealing with uh, a being that is limited to human uh, or, or any known limitations of power, uh, it seems a bizarre thing to ask, well, how could God do this in six days? Well, how long could you do it in? How much time would you need to do it? Uh, I've got a feeling because you know, trillions of years, if you were given that much time, you couldn't do it, which means that God did it in a period of time that he, it suited him to do it in, but it wouldn't be any easier or harder for him to do it in a different period of time. Uh, he's, uh, the Bible teaches that God is pretty much omnipotent. He can do what he wants to do, and uh, he's got infinite power. So that would be, I mean, it's a strange question to ask, how could God do this in seven days? Um, if there is the God that the Bible describes, how could he be prevented from doing it in seven days if he wished? That's really the question. Hey, I appreciate your call. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live Monday through Friday for an hour each weekday afternoon. Been doing this for 27 years. Been doing it since um, 1997. Wow, longer than some of you have been born. We're glad to have you with us. We are listener supported. We do pay a lot of money to radio stations to be on the air. We have no no employees, no paychecks here, but we do have to pay the radio stations. If you'd like to help us, you can write to the Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730. Temecula, California, 92593, or you can do it from the website, thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.